Amen. Thank you, Sister Sylvia. Appreciate you playing tonight. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And I trust that you'll bear with me as I read the scriptures. I have a confession to make. I've, I've only got my seeing glasses with me. I don't have the reading glasses. In fact, they broke here in the pulpit this morning. And I'm only telling you now, I'll have to go and get them fixed. That's what happens when you put them into your pocket and pull them out quickly. Luke chapter 23, and I want to read just a short reading. Verse 27, right through to verse 33. Luke chapter 23, verse 27. Let's hear the word of God. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with them to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 34. And we pray the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. 23, verse 33. Let's read it together. It says, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now I've entitled tonight's message, Considering the Three Crosses at Calvary. Now I want you to think with me of those words, when they were come to the place which is called Calvary. Now this is the most interesting place that's mentioned in the Bible. And I want to put a number of things to you this evening. First of all, I want you to think of this, that Calvary is a place of discovery. You see, Calvary makes all the difference. Here's a seven-letter word, three syllables. Someone has said that without Jesus Christ, the Bible makes no sense. And I believe they're right. Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks the great treasures of the Holy Scriptures. He himself said, search the Scriptures, for these are they that testify of me. You see, the Bible is Christocentric. It's, it's all about him. The Scriptures point us to him. Let me add something. Not only would it be true to say that without Jesus Christ, the Bible makes no sense, but it would be true to say without Calvary. 
the Bible would make no difference. What makes the Bible a special book is not only that it's inspired and inerrant and preserved word of God, but that it centers on this place called Calvary. And if you want to know what the Bible's all about, it's all about Calvary. You see, tonight let us thank God for the place called Calvary. Now, it's a sad fact, but it's a true fact, that the vast majority of modern Bible versions all have removed the word Calvary in their translations. Think of the common English Bible. It reads, when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on the left. The English Standard Version. And when they come to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Think of the NIV. When they come to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one in the right hand and other in the left. Now, there's another paraphrase. It's called The Message. It's very, very popular in Northern Ireland. And it's really just a paraphrase, a man's paraphrase of the scriptures. And this is how Eugene Patterson uh, translated it. Uh, when they come to the place called Skull Hill. In fact, I put it to you tonight that 50 of the modern translations of the Bible all remove the word Calvary. Most of the translators using a different Greek text all choose to translate the word skull and they have replaced the word Calvary with the word skull so they do not use the word Calvary now I want to thank God tonight for the authorized version the King James Bible translated from the Textus Receptus the received text in 1611 and it keeps in the word Calvary. Did you know that in the 13th century, John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, translated the Latin into English, and he translated this word that was translated from Greek to Latin into English, he translated it as the word Calvary. That's way back in the 13th century. And William Tyndale's New Testament, 1525, the very same thing, translated the word Calvary. Cranmer's Bible, 1539. The Geneva Bible, 1557. The translators in 1611. And I want to say tonight, thank God that it's still there. And thank God that that word Calvary is used in our hymns. And we were singing that lovely hymn uh, tonight, 215, at the very start of the service. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. You see, Calvary, I believe, is one of the most beautiful places of discovery. Now, I've had the privilege of having four trips to the land of Israel. And every time we, we love to visit what is commonly called by tour guides, Gordon's Calvary. You see, in 1883, there was a man called General Gordon. He was a British military officer stationed in Jerusalem looking over the city. And he was visiting a friend. I'll tell you who the friend was, Horatius Stafford. So he's in Horatius Stafford's home. 
And he's looking out of the window of Stafford's apartment. And as he looks out the apartment window, he sees the face of a skull. And he traces the outline of the eyes. And he's saying, there's the nose. Look, there's the shape of the mouth carved out of the rock. So he calls Horatio Spafford over and he says to him, look, there's Calvary. And he turns to this very text of scripture, Luke 23 and 33. He says that is where Jesus was crucified. And of course they read the Bible, all their corresponding scriptures, that it was in a main thoroughfare. Remember the superinscription in three languages, Hebrew, Greek and Latin, for people to read. It was outside the city gate. There was a garden nearby. And glory to God in that garden, there was a garden tomb. And General Gordon was one of the strongest advocates for the place of Christ's crucifixion. And it became known from that time, 1883, as Gordon's Calvary. See, the Church of Rome, if we were to visit Jerusalem tonight, would take us to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If we were saying to them, where was the place Jesus was crucified? Well, follow me. And we through the streets of Jerusalem, and they would take us to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And they would say, this is the place. Wait a wee minute, but it's inside the city. Wait a wee minute, this is not a main thoroughfare. Wait a wee minute, there's no garden nearby. Where's the tomb? And then they'd take us to another spot where they'd say, oh, this is where the tomb was. But I want to tell you tonight, this place called Calvary was central to God's plan for the world. In fact, it's central to the message of the Bible. You see, if you think about the Middle East, you're talking about the middle of the world. And in the middle of the world, there's a little country called Israel. And in Israel, you've got the great city of Jerusalem. And that is a place and a land that God has a holy jealousy for. Ezekiel 39 and 25. And outside the city wall of Jerusalem, there is and was a place where Jesus Christ was crucified and we call it Calvary. Now I know it's also called by another name, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there is a skull nearby. But General Gordon, I believe, was absolutely convinced that this was the place where Christ was crucified. I want to tell you something else. Not only was it a place of discovery, but it was a place of design. You see... There was three crosses erected on Calvary's hill. You've got the middle cross, the cross of Christ. And it's not the central theme of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's doing and why. You remember, the cross of Christ is a place designed by God. It's a place where God was going to bring about great deliverance. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block unto the Greeks' foolishness. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You see, many view the cross of Christ tonight and its message as absolute foolishness. And some preachers, and this is true, even talk about the advocates of a slaughterhouse religion. And they look upon the cross of Christ as some sort of messy, gory mix of blood and guts. And to true Bible-believing Christianity, it's obnoxious to their heart and mind. It offends their liberal contemporary mind to talk about the cross of Christ being a place of design. But unto us who are saved by that cross of Christ, it's not foolishness. It's the power of God unto salvation. And God planned this from all eternity. You know, some people imagine that Adam and Eve were just, if they just lived a good life and hadn't sinned and lived a long life, everything would have been okay. But because they fell into sin, well, now wait a minute, I've got a problem here, boys. I better bring in plan B. And the cross of Christ was plan B. It wasn't. The cross of Christ was planned from all eternity. How do I know that it was planned from all eternity? Listen to what the Apostle Peter says. And it would be good to listen to the Apostle. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to verse 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily, here's verse 20, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. It's a place of great design. Jesus Christ didn't just begin to begin at Bethlehem. Yes, God with us at Bethlehem. But before that, he was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. And this was in the heart and plan and mind of God. Let me tell you something else about Calvary tonight. It's a place of great division. Because three crosses spanned Calvary that day. There was a cross of condemnation. There was a man who died in his sins. On the cross. And then there was a cross of conversion because there was a man died to his sins that day in Calvary's hill. And then, of course, in the middle, there was the cross of Christ. Now, I want you to stand with me at this place because this is a place of great discovery, a place of great design, but it's also a place of great division. And that's what we want to focus on considering the three crosses of Christ. Let's think of this cross of condemnation. It says in our text, if you look at it, and the malefactor, one on the right hand and the other on the left. You see, one of these malefactors represented an unrepentant thief. The word malefactor speaks of a thief, an evildoer, a robber, a criminal. All of these translations would be valid. A transgressor. And of course this was fulfilling prophecy. Because the Bible says in the book of Isaiah chapter 53. That he was numbered with the transgressors. Where was he numbered with the transgressors? In his death 
at Mount Calvary. And one of the thieves, now I want you to get this picture, was within speaking distance with Christ. He could shout over. He's within looking distance of Christ. He can see Christ. He can see the superscription. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, in three languages. He is within hearing distance of Christ. So, so let's get this picture. This man is nearby Christ. And what did he do? Within speaking, looking, and hearing distance of Christ. Look at chapter 23, verse 39 of Luke. And one of the malefactors which was hanged riled in him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. The word riled there means he blasphemed him. This is the same word for blaspheme translated in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31. Think of it. The last bit of breath they had. The, the last few remaining moments of his life. What's he doing? He's using it to rail against Christ. He, he's doubting. If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. He sees the sign. This is Jesus. The name Jesus means Savior. King of the Jews. It's unmistakable. It's in three language. I believe he also heard during those three hours the jeers and taunts of the chief priests and the elders and the people. Turn over there to Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. And let's read from verse 39. It says, And they that passed by reviled him. See, it's a main thoroughfare, remember. It's outside the city gate, the entrance of Jerusalem, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Look at verse 41. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. <laughs> Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And you see, this malefactor heard all this. And all the while, despite what he saw, despite what he heard, despite within being looking distance of Christ, there wasn't one word of rebuke from the lips of the Savior. The Savior was silent to this robber. He's facing death. He's going out into eternity. And this man sadly has no thought of his sin. He's no thought of the consequences of sin, which is eternal hell and punishment. This man has no hope. He's without God and without Christ and without hope. He is facing eternal punishment. This man lived and died without Christ, was lost forever. What did he do, even though he was within looking, speaking and hearing distance of Christ? He reviled him. He did something else. He rejected him. You see, I believe this man rejected Christ and the offer of salvation. If you read the scriptures very carefully, this man does a lot of talking. And one of the things that he says to the Savior, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Now, if you go back to Matthew chapter 27 and look with me at verse 44, it says, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, 
cast the same in his teeth. Now, what does that mean? It means the very things that others were saying, they heard it, were influenced by it, and said the very same things to Christ. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. If thou be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. For he said, I'm the Son of God. Do do you get the picture? And yet all the while there wasn't one word from the lips of Christ. Not one word of rebuke, not one word of condemnation. Do you know tonight it's possible to sin away the day of grace? It's possible to sin away God's opportunity. For you'll reach the point where the Lord will not speak to you anymore. The Lord will have nothing more to say to you. And I want to say tonight, if you feel in that state, God's not speaking to me, God has nothing more to say, then this is what I want you to do. I want you to get down on your knees. And I want you to cry, Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive the way I think and feel. Forgive what I've said. Lord, spare me. Lord, save me. Have mercy on me. Remember old Herod? It was Herodias' birthday. He's throwing a party. He wants to please her. He gets Herodias' daughter to dance before him and his comrades. They're drinking. They're making merry. I don't know whether she was semi-naked or fully naked. But one thing I know that she pleased him. She caught his eye. And he said to her, Look, love, you ask for whatever you want. Up to half the kingdom, I give it to you. You see, he's in a drunken stupor. And what has he asked for? Because her mother influenced her. The head of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist had come to old Herod and said, It's not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. It's adultery. You're breaking the law of God. You're going to be judged. Repent. And he didn't. Now years later, old Pilate, he wants to get rid of Jesus. So he sends him to Herod. And Herod starts to question Christ. Who are you and what are you about? I have power to do this and that. And you know what? When you read the scriptures, it says, and he answered him, never a word. He never opened his mouth to Herod. Why? Well, I believe why. Because Herod heard the voice of Christ and the word of God through the lips of John the Baptist and he rejected it. And in that moment, he was cut off. The day of grace and opportunity was gone. And this dying thief, with a few minutes to go, is doing exactly the same thing. He's railing in Christ. He's refusing Christ. He's rejecting Christ. And he shuts the door of mercy. And the Savior's nothing to say to him. So full of his pride, he can't see his sin. So full of himself, he can't even sense that he's going out into a Christless eternity. What a tragedy! And how many are there like it in Northern Ireland tonight? You know, it's true to lose your wealth as much. I know a man in Ballymoney who sold cattle and he had a whole roll of money. As, as oh, a big roll of money. A uh, hundred pound notes he'd sold that many cattle. And he fell asleep sitting at the fire. And the money dropped out of his hand. And when he woke up, it was all burned. There was only a wee crisp left. And boy, he was got it. You see, to lose your wealth is much. But to lose your health is more. How many people are losing their health at this time? 
fear and trepidation, what am I going to do? But to lose your soul is a loss that nothing can restore. Remember the Savior said in Mark's gospel, in Mark uh, chapter uh, 8 and verse 36, he said, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's the cross of condemnation. Now, let's come quickly to the other cross, the cross of conversion. You see, one of the thieves, he died in his sin, but the other thief, his companion in crime, he died to his sin in the dying moments of his life. You see, he realized the cursing of sin. Matthew 27, 44, the two thieves were casting the same in the teeth of Christ. They were reviling and rejecting and refusing him. And then there was the challenge to sin. Something dawned in his mind, his heart. The Holy Spirit was at work. He said to his companion in crime, Dost thou not fear God? Look at Luke chapter 23 and in the verse um, 40. Luke chapter 23 and in the verse 40. He says to him, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? You see, there was a realization. I'm a sinner. There was a recognition of his own sin. There was a repudiation of his sin. There was a repentance of sin. I believe this man discovered who Jesus Christ was. Thinking about these words, King of the Jews, Jesus, Savior, he saved others himself he cannot save. The sign in the cross, the saying of the crowd. Whom do you fear tonight? Do you fear men? Remember Jesus said, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Fear not them which can kill the body, but rather fear him that hath power to throw both body and soul in hell. Do you hold him in dread? Are you in awe of him tonight? Do you fear him? There was a confession of sin. Verse 41 of Luke 23 and we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man have done nothing amiss. You see, he's full of who Christ is in his person, in his purity. He realizes there's a public acknowledgement needed of his own sin and guilt and past deeds. So he's taken the place of a sinner. Remember the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. He's taken the place as one who discovered what you sow you reap. He takes the place as one who is not deceived because he, he realizes that he has sin that he needs to acknowledge and repent of. He's taken the place as one acknowledging, I need a Savior. And he called in the Savior. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Have you ever called in Christ? Whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel 2.32 says, Whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Have you called? Lord, save me. Lord, spare me. Let me tell you something else. This man was converted in the spot. Instantaneous conversion. The dying thief. What did Jesus say? Today shall thou be with me in paradise. The garden of God. He had the assurance of heaven. It was not presumption on his part. He had the assurance that he was going to be with Christ. And this book says, He that believeth on the Son hath what? Everlasting life. I give unto my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. And no man shall pluck them out of my hand. 
Let's think lastly, the cross of crucifixion. Let's come to the middle cross, the cross of Christ. There they crucified him. Four words. There they crucified him. It's in the text. Think of the place, the place of discovery, place of design. It's a place of division. Here's a picture of the world in miniature, the middle cross. Notice the people here. They, who were they? The Jews and the Romans. The leaders, the soldiers. Think of the Roman soldiers performing the act of crucifixion. Do you know that it's widely reported that they crucified something like 30,000 Jews? If we take that number as they stand, crucifixion, remember, is a form of capital punishment. They were crucifying criminals. And yet 29,999 of them, and out of them all, one man is different. Out of the 30,000, this one man stands out. Remember the centurion, verse 47. He saw it all. He heard it all. He knew this man was different. He said, truly, this was a righteous man because he didn't die as other criminals had died. He didn't behave the way others had behaved. You've got to think of the, 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 not only the Romans here, but think of the rabble here. We've already read it, Matthew 27, 39 to 43. Their mockery, their ridicule, their abuse, their taunting of Christ. He saved others. Let him save himself. Let him come down from the cross. Think of the robbers here. They were fulfilling prophecy. As I've said, numbered with the transgressors. And one of them was saved. Even in his dying moments. And one of them was lost. And even though they're called malefactors, let's remember we're no better. Let's remember the Bible says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's remember the Bible says for the wages of sin is death. The Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall die. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. See, there's the people, the Romans, the rabble. There's the robbers. Notice there's a procedure here. Crucified. See, crucifixion was a horrible death. It was the death of a common criminal. And it signified that that individual was under the curse of God. Because in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, it says, For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God hath given thee for an inheritance. And over there in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Being made a curse for us. Why? For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Here's a horrible death. And the apostle Paul, he looked upon this horrible death as justification, as a good thing. But the day that he met the risen Christ, he began to glory in the cross of Christ. Glory in his crucifixion. Let me tell you why in the few minutes we have. It speaks of substitution. See, in that middle tree, he was taking the place of a substitute. The hymn writer said, he took my place and died for me. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is not that the heart of the gospel? This man who did no sin, who knew no sin, in him was no sin. He asked, which of you convinceth me of sin? The, the, the Pilate's wife, remember, said to her husband, have nothing to do with this just man. The centurion said, this man have done nothing amiss. 
When he was on the tree, he was in the place of substitution. Let me tell you something else. He was in the place of sacrifice. Hebrews 10 and 12, but this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. And every sacrifice from Calvary back, you can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. For men fell in sin and misery. Remember, God came seeking Adam, calling for Adam, where art thou? Adam was hiding from God. That there was a dying already going on in the body. And there's healing. What hast thou done? And God made fig uh, 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 leaves and, and sewed them together. Man made was those fig leaves. J- just like some religious activity or rite or ritual. But, but God took away that sowing of the man made fig tree. And God made a, a covering for Adam. And Eve, and that necessitated the shedding of blood. And, and, and you see, the sacrifice runs right back. That was the ransom price, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the pure for the impure, the righteous for the unrighteous. It not only speaks of sacrifice, but it speaks of salvation. You think of the crown of thorns and the brow of Christ, the scars on his back, the nakedness, the nails plunged into his hand. And then add to that the sin and its weight, Transferred and put in Christ God made him to be a sin offering For us who knew no sin That we might be made the righteousness of God in him You see that's the procedure And it speaks of substitution Sacrifice and salvation But notice as we finish There's a person here There they crucified him The place The people The procedure But the person Him He was no ordinary person You see the tree that he was hanging on, young people? He made that tree. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 verse 3, all things were made by him and without him was nothing made that was made. And you know that there's a big stone in Tullymore. You can go, it's along the Shimna River. Some of you might have seen it. And it says this, an inscription on it. Stop and look around and praise the name of him who made it all. Acts 10, 30, 43 says, to him give all the prophets witness. It says in Hebrews 1 and 9, let all the angels of God worship him. It says in Colossians 2 and 9, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We've already thought about John 3 and 18. John 3 and 36, he that believeth in him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And the Lord comes tonight and says this, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Not Buddha, not the Pope, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not the church, but him. And as you stand at the cross, this place of discovery, this place of design, this place of division, and see these three crosses, it's a picture of the world. A penitent sinner trusting Christ and given the assurance of today shall thou be with me in paradise. And an unrepentant man dying as he lived, going out into eternity, reviling Christ and rejecting him. Let me give you this illustration as we finish. There's a man called Frank Marshall. He was an evangelist. He was having a gospel mission in the Diamond Orange Hall. He was at that time representing the Irish evangelistic band. And some man said to him, you know, Mr. Marshall, you shout too loud. 
and your sermons are too long. And he said to that individual, well, if your soul ends up in hell, you'd be saying, Frank Marshall didn't shout loud enough. And Frank Marshall didn't preach long enough. Jurgant mission lasted for eight weeks. See, missions don't last eight weeks now. A week, two at the most, three, that's very extreme. But in those days, it was eight weeks. And people came, people flocked. There was two men got converted. And they got converted on this eighth week. Isn't that wonderful? One of them were best of mates on the Monday night. He got converted. And he prayed Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night for his friend. Sunday afternoon come and he thought, my friend's going to come to Christ. They were the last two men out of the orange hall. The one that was converted stepped out first. Having shook hands with the preacher and thanked him for coming and praised the Lord he was saved. The other man was about to step out. Just shaking the hand of the preacher and then something happened. The wind caught the door. The door opened out. And the wind caught the door and it slammed in the man's face as he was about to go out. As if he was being shut in to the preacher. And he looked at the preacher and said, what's all that about? And the preacher, Frank Marshall, said to him, God is speaking, friend. He's saying to you now, now's the day of salvation. Now's the time. Come now. All you have to do is get down on your knees with me and say, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. And he refused. And you know what his friend testified later? From that day to the end of his day, having sat under the gospel for eight whole weeks, that man never mentioned Christ, darkened the door of a church, or went to a gospel meeting. Don't go like that. Don't revile and refuse and reject Christ. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The place called Calvary. Three crosses to consider. As you stand, are you gazing at the middle cross, place of substitution, sacrifice and salvation, and saying, thank God, Christ died for me.